Well, good morning. Looks like everybody survived uh, the festivities. Thanks for indulging on the song. Isn't that cool? A little bit of history on that. Can you hear me okay? All right. Well, before we get started, uh, anything uh, of note that you heard over the weekend? Uh, Sam was coming back and forth or whatever. Uh, any faith-promoting rumors? Questions, comments, concerns, complaints? All right, we're in pretty good shape. All right, now as we get started uh, today then, um, I want you to start uh, picturing for just a second. Uh, I want you to imagine that if, if you are, uh, if you're a Christian living around 1833, let me ask, when, when you look at the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament represent for you? What's the importance of the Old Testament if you're a Christian in 1833? Christ. So there's a lot in there that say that Christ is coming. Okay. Well, it's it's history. It, it's history. Okay, history of. And a build on. And obviously it was the scriptures he used. Okay? For some families it was the only book they had in their homes, so they read it a lot. Sure. They're very familiar with the Old Testament, and certainly stories like David and and uh, Goliath and Samson and all that were stories. A lot of times that's where kids learn how to read, were those kind of things. Okay? Well the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments. Okay. Sure. Okay, and and all those and also then, so as it flows into then, then you've got the New Testament, and the New Testament then becomes the the next most uh, the most important part, right? Because a lot of the Old Testament is just the Law of Moses, so we're getting important stories there. But all of that is kind of subsumed in the New Testament, and here comes the New Covenant and New Testament in Christ, and so everything about the law in the Old Testament is now fulfilled. So we're getting stories and information and history, but not as much doctrinally from the Old Testament, because we're going to find most of that in the New Testament, right? Okay? So if you're, if you're a Christian and you're living in 1833, what relevance does the Temple of Solomon have for you? Really not, right? What, rel- what relevance does Elijah have? Nice story. Yeah. Because the importance is now in the New Testament, it's not in the Old Testament. Does Abraham have anything for you? Other than elders, the Abraham and Isaac and the so there's there's that. But anything in terms of power, authority, anything like that? Okay? As examples in the Old Testament. Okay. Now, so when we look though at, at so when as far as Christians were concerned, 1833, and even a lot of Christians now, the Old Testament has a lot of information, but not as much relevance. Does that make sense? 
Okay, now, part of, yeah? For me personally, the relevant is that it shows that the Lord is in charge, had been from the beginning, the prophecies that he gave to the prophets, and they declared they have been fulfilled, and it's evidence, and the, the testimony of, uh, of the great work. Okay, hold on for a sec. Okay. Hold on for a sec. Now, so now if, now, now if we jump to 2012, we work really hard in this church trying to convince the world that we are Christian. Okay? And that we are part of Christendom. That nobody understands the Savior quite like we do. Okay? But isn't it fascinating that we have a lot of words that we use in this church? Things like temple, Zion. Levite, patriarchal blessing, priesthood, Melchizedek, sons of Abraham, seed of Abraham. Yes, states. Now, so so my question, I guess, is, what are we? Are we? Is this church, are we more Jewish, Israel, tribes, Zion, temple, sacrifice, or are we more Christian, atonement, Christ, the attitudes? How is it a combination of both? Because again, this is because again, I think we spend. We could make a pretty good case that we are at least as Jewish as we are Christian, couldn't we? Okay. Yeah, I, I was explaining to my family the other day. He was asking about garments, and I was saying, it's "Garments." Like yes. Yeah. Yes. And they they are around. Okay. Yes, yeah. that's right. And, and I love that now, you know, that you've got that scripture and all of that. And Jesus, of course, came from that, and he said his church of Absolutely did, yeah. There's a lot of ordinances and things that they actually had and did during, before Christ, but then Christ established the church and the laws fulfilled everything. Then those ordinances need to be restored. Isn't that interesting? So for us, how relevant is the Old Testament to us? Very. It's not just a fulfilling of the law, but we're reaching back and we're for things like temple, tribes, Zion. All of that becomes an important part of, of what we do. Prophecy. So Abraham is as important to us as Peter is. Right? I can't think of another organization that does that. Maybe the Messianic Jews are, are closer to that. But yeah. Right. Christ and, and all of the things that we are asked to do to emphasize the spirit and the instructions of the church, we are very complex and outreaching. Right. 
I just think it's fascinating that we work so hard trying to explain that we are part of Christendom, but then the deeper you get into it, all these Jewish things keep showing up. You know, if, if you're at Passover, you're going to leave a chair at Passover. If you're Jewish, you're going to leave a seat for who? Elijah. Gee, wonder when Elijah's coming. Anybody know? We know. We're about to talk about it. The fact that we do not have a cross on our church is one of the big reasons that most of the Christian yeah. faiths don't think we're Christian because we don't have that symbol that they do. Yeah, so, so and that, that's why we're in this discussion. And, and so now, I want you to keep yourself in, the, in this frame of mind. Now, here comes December 1832. We're going to take a step back just a, a few months here. Here comes this revelation from the Lord. In section 88, organize yourself, prepare every needful thing, establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. We're going to build a temple, saints, of 1832, most of which could have been in the church only about 18 months. What's a temple? I, why would we need a temple? Of course they knew. Of course they knew what a temple was. They were reading the Old Testament from the time they were Right, two. except for the fact that that's been... Those, what did they do in the temple? Well, it was the law of Moses, right? But that's been, that's been fulfilled. Why would we need a temple? But even the Jews aren't quite sure what was done in the temple. Right? Because yeah. that, that actually was lost. So even though we have the Old Testament that talks about the temple and epods or whatever, all that weird but stuff. But they had so much that was oral history that wasn't written down in the scripture. Oh, sure. But, but the, to this day, the Jews still aren't sure what... Do we really need a temple? Are we okay? I mean, I realize, you know, that it was in our history, but is it really essential? Because we're, we're not really living the law of Moses. You know, we're not sacrificing animals. <laughs> well, even if you talk to the Jews today... If, if it was important, they would have built it. Oh, sure. But, but now take it one step more, because most of what we were drawing from in the early days of the church was Christian gym, right? A lot of Presbyterians, a lot of Methodists, a lot of Baptists. And now, here they come, now come Church of England people. The Lord wants us to build a temple. Wow. I guess that's important, huh? Seems like a lot of work. What purpose would there be for us to have a temple? We're not living the law of Moses. We're not going to be doing animal sacrifices. Joseph, we're going to be doing animal sacrifices? No, don't think so. Okay. So we're supposed to build a temple. Where do you think that went on their priority list? We've got a lot of other things we've got to get done, Joseph. You know, we're just trying to live. We keep moving. And then we're trying to establish. We're trying to plant crops. And we've got all these kind of things. And... Okay, he seems to be kind of hopped up on this temple thing, but we're just not quite sure it's that big a deal. Um, were there people who thought that perhaps that, that was not a physical temple that they were sure. but their ask, ask most, in fact, if, if we were to ask a lot of Christians today, do you need a temple, what, what would they say? Citing the scriptures. It's within us, right? So it really isn't a physical structure that you really wouldn't need to have that. And Joseph says, no, we need, the Lord has commanded us to build an outside. Okay, that understanding isn't there. That's 
They didn't, but it wasn't in their tradition, was it? It wasn't in their understanding. Right, and, and until they'd actually experienced it. I mean, they weren't there yet. That's why I think, for instance, and we have some of that today, one of the reasons why I think there's a nice parallel here is that whether you're new to the church or even for a lot of members coming in, we're trying to say, I understand that you come to church on Sunday, but you need to prepare and get ready to go to the temple. Okay, if I'm coming out of a different tradition, what does that mean? They seem to be, you know, the visionaries seem to get excited when they say you should get ready to go to the temple. So I guess it's a cool thing. And I would say for even a lot of members, they're just not quite sure what is the big deal with the temple. It's not in my tradition. I don't understand it. Why did Joseph uh, join the Masons? Tell you what, hang on to that one. <laughs> because, because, you know, he's asking about, uh, did I turn this on? Yeah, um, asking about Joseph and the, and the Masons, and when we get to temp, temp, when we get to uh, section one ten, let's talk about that because because there's some really beautiful answers that come with that. Uh, but it has to do a lot with symbolism because, in a sense, think about what we do. Uh, the Jews had traditionally they had the synagogue and they had the temple. Where did they go? When did they go to the synagogue? Every Sabbath, on, on Shabbat, right? When do they go to the temple? On feast days mainly, and then other to perform ordinances that you couldn't do in the synagogue. Or when you were assigned. Or, or when you're part of, if you're, that was one of your assignments, you're going to be there on those days. Okay? Because there was a daily bird offering going on up there. Okay? So now what happens when the temple is destroyed, they're left with the synagogue. Because the temple is no longer available. So they carry on their tradition as the synagogue only. So along come the Latter-day Saints, and we have a tradition in of where we're going to go on Sunday, on the Sabbath, and go to church. And now he's going to add that piece back in. There should be both. And again, if it's out of the tradition, if there, there's a lack of understanding. But if you think about it, isn't it fascinating? What, what we do on Sundays in our sacrament meetings is primarily Christian. What do we do in the temple? Jewish. Primarily Jewish. New Testament, Old Testament, and it all flows together because the two become one. Okay. Is there anything in the Old Testament that hasn't either been fulfilled or restored? Is there anything from the Old Testament that hasn't been renewed? Now, that's funny. If you ask that again, ask the Christendom, they're going to say there isn't a need to restore much from the Old Testament because the Savior was the new covenant and all of the law of Moses was fulfilled. So we really don't need to bring the law of Moses back. Except for the fact that prior to the law of Moses, there was all this prophet stuff. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his stuff needed to be brought forward, didn't it? Was it? When? Yeah, 1836. We're, we're, we're building the foundations for it right now. The only thing that comes to my mind that hasn't been fulfilled is there has to be a final sacrifice. Yeah, and that's what Joseph was hinting at. Was yeah. the, the fact that that would be part, not law of Moses sacrifice, but prophet sacrifice in some way. And we don't have 
hardly any information about that. Okay? So, all I want you to do is, I want you to, as we get looking at this, I want you to put yourself in the place of these saints. They're trying to live, uh, they're trying to build Zion, they're trying to establish themselves in Kirtland, they're trying to take care of themselves, they have moved, they've been uprooted from where they moved from, and on top of that, the Lord gives a commandment, build a temple, and it kind of went to the bottom of the priority list. They had other, okay, we'll get to that. And in fact, it's interesting now, and it'll sound kind of strange to us, uh, uh, Lucy Mack talks about the fact that when they first started having discussions about the temple, and I put it in the historical thing, the discussions kind of went, well, okay, we need to build a temple, right? Yeah, uh, we got lots of wood. Why don't we just do it as a log cabin, like a big log cabin? That would be good. Yeah, log cabins make sense. Joseph, we think we should do a log cabin temple. In the same way, that, and they didn't quite learn when they got to the Salt Lake Valley, and Brigham said, you know, he walks over a little ways, and he puts his stick in the ground, and he goes, here's where we will build the temple of God. And they said, great, let's do it with mud bricks. And then, okay, he doesn't want mud bricks, we'll at least do kind of sandstone. And he says, no, we need granite. This is going to be around a while. In other words, the concept. Because the, the idea of a log cabin temple doesn't make sense. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, they, they were just thinking easy. You know, uh, Brigham, the mountains are like 20 miles that way. The granite is, we're not sure how we get those big rocks all the way down here. Uh, the, the Mormon battalion just came in and built a fort out of mud bricks. We could probably build some kind of temple by next week. If we just all pitched in, lots of mud, lots of water, that would work, wouldn't it? They haven't had one that leave yet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just find it interesting that the Lord knew all those challenges that, that those people had, and He knows our challenges, and it seems to be a lot. So He must know that we can do a lot more than we think we can. Do you hear that? In some ways, wouldn't it have been unfair of the Lord, given their... Poverty, circumstances, whatever extra money they had, what were they doing? What were they living? Law of consecration. So even if I've got a little bit of money and I have a little bit extra, that go, I'm consecrating that. And where's that money going? Off to Zion, right? I'm in Kirtland, so I really only have basically enough for my needs. How do I have time or energy to build a temple? And the Lord's asking anyway. So I have a I have a certain amount of uh, understandment understandment is that a word understanding close okay let's go to section ninety five can I make a quick comment yeah I taught the gospel principles lesson yesterday and there was just a quote in there that goes right along with what she just said it says a veil covers our memories of pre mortal life. Then the Lord is going to tell me what He knows I can do. There's a gap. 
I think I can do this. He says I can do this. And sometimes the overwhelming view of that is so big that we don't ask. I'm afraid to ask him because he's going to ask me to do more than what I think I can do. Even though at some level I know he knows I can do it, I just think I can only do this, and so I don't want to ask him for what I shouldn't be doing because he knows what I'm going to do and I don't want to ask him. Because then I'll know what I'm supposed to be doing and I don't think I can do that. Does that make sense? Doesn't your head do that? Mine does constantly. But, just, but there are those rare occasions when you say, I cannot do any more, and he'll be like, you're right. Yeah, we've given everything that we have. Yes. Sure. Okay, so 95. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, and whom I love, I chasten that their sins may be forgiven. And then there's this intriguing phrase. For with the chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of what? Oh, isn't that interesting? So, so first of all, we're going to talk about chastisement. What is chastisement? It's what? A chewing out. Yeah, it can be kind of a chewing out. Serious scolding. It's course changing. Okay, parents, let me ask you this. What is the difference for your kids, what is the difference between punishment and discipline? Tone of voice. Tone of voice? <laughs> okay, is that discipline or is that punishment? How can you tell the difference? Discipline means to teach. To teach, to train. I was working out this morning. I was trying to discipline my muscles to do things they really didn't want to be doing. Okay? It felt punishing. <laughs> my muscles would say, why are you punishing me? I hate doing this. You're making me do things I don't want to do. But I know it's discipline because I know you're going to be stronger as a result of the discipline. Right? Yes. Chasten means to, to purify, to cleanse. Okay, we're talking about how sometimes, last week we were talking about how the salt loses its savor. Salt will last forever. Unless it's mixed with impurities, and it has to be, salt has to be chastened. The impurities have to be taken out. So chastening, like discipline, is a matter of removing impurities. Well, in the footnote it says chastening, love of God. Yeah, isn't that great? That what wouldn't if I asked everybody to say, give me a synonym for God's love, how many of you would say, oh, chastening? <laughs> that makes sense. Charity, chastening. They're all kind of in there together. But God's whole job is to purify us. It is his job. He says, and remember, we're going to have clean hands, but he's going to give us the pure heart. We don't have the ability to do the pure heart. He does the clean hand. We do the clean hands, he does the pure heart. So let me go back. What's the difference between discipline, chastening, and punishment? Yeah, with maybe with no sense about what we want to have. We're just mad. Punishment is, I'm mad that you ruined, you 
interrupted me in the middle of my football game, so I'm going to squat your behind and send you out. Punishment just says I'm going to make you hurt with the idea that maybe you'll stop again, but I really almost don't care if you stop again because I'm really doing it out of more of a sense of you need to be punished. There has to be pain to because of what you did. Discipline says I'm going to institute things that will make it so that you are less likely to do destructive things again. It's the consequence. <coughs> Discipline may be a consequence of your behavior. Punishment is just Okay, now, let's take that, because I want to take that one step farther. Exactly. So if this is chastisement, meaning I'm the, the Lord's love, chastisement, results in I, our deliverance in all things out of temptation. That's odd. How does chastisement deliver us from temptation? You're on a roll. Well, okay, I love my dad. Okay. But he had a philosophy that... Bless his heart, you know. I love bless my dad, bless his heart. Yeah, I, I in Texas. I think you need good parents, you can just borrow my trust. Yeah, okay. But he always Put that under the list of possibilities, okay? Yeah. Okay, so if you're more humble and more careful, then how is that going to remove or just decrease the amount of temptations? Okay, but you, you did, but I could still get tempted, couldn't I? When you've been chastised and you're feeling humble and you're kind of communing with the Lord, temptation does not look interesting anymore. Ah, you hear that? If, we, if we're in that place, we, we talked about becoming kind of the empty vessel and allowing the Lord to fill us with His fullness. In that place, when we're humble, we're teachable, we've cast off the natural man, and temptation comes along, how do we do? We're, are we less likely to respond? I remember having a, a, a client of mine struggling with pornography, and, and month after month, he just had to work on keep trying to do it himself, and finally he was able to kind of cast that off. And he said he could remember the time uh, walking by the computer, and a little voice, kind of little temptation for that, and he just patted the computer and went, uh-uh, not so much, and just kind of walked off. In other words, it just didn't have any effect. It's only a temptation if we want it. If we don't desire whatever it is, it's not a temptation. Does that make sense? It, and in other words, I think there are things that uh, would be very tempting to me. There are other things that have never been tempted. I've just never really been tempted by coffee. Never really been tempted to drink. You know, there are other things that look a little more enticing, but some things are just, that I think Satan knows that there's just no sense trying to tempt me with coffee because it's just not going to... Not even a register. I think sometimes when you're closer to something, you're more tempted. The further further away you are from that line, that dividing line of 
good and bad. You think it loses some of its pull? Well, it loses some of its pull, yeah. Okay. So, he's, so here he's starting off here. Okay, saints. For the chastisement, I prepare a way. Uh, now, therefore ye must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face, he says. Verse 3. For you have sinned against me, a very grievous sin. In you have not considered the great commandment in all things. And what was the great commandment? Yep. That I, I have given unto you concerning the building of my house. Years later in Salt Lake, Orson Trapp would say, we just didn't understand how important it was. On, on two levels. One, the contention that we were stirring up. Number two, how important the temple was. Because it just was not in their understanding or in their tradition. He just didn't care. Do you have any explanation on why the construction of the inside, uh, the purpose of the Kirtland Temple was so different than all of our other temples? Is there any reason why? Yes, yeah, there is. Uh, hold on to that. Okay. We'll, we'll get there. What, why, what there was unique about the construction of the Kirtland Temple? Very, yeah, very important differences. Okay, now, so now he's going to teach him. For the preparation of the temple, therefore I design to prepare mine apostles to prune my vineyard for the last time. And then he's going to use an interesting phrase. And anytime you hear an interesting phrase, that ought to say, oh, okay, time to stop, let's research this thing. Where did this come from? In what context? Because he's going to say, that I may bring to pass my strange act. Yeah. That I may pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Ooh. My strange act. Now, I think we could look at it and say, okay, we can consider some things that are strange. So, so, so let me just ask, what makes somebody a stranger? They're different. They're different. You're not from here, are you? You're a stranger here. Okay? You're not from around these parts. Okay? Why would this be a strange act? It's unfamiliar? Yes, just like we were saying before, it's something that's new to them. This is a new concept. Yeah, it is. And I think that's why it is the Lord used this term, isn't it? Because, by the way, other than using it again in, in section 101, he only uses this one other time in all the scriptures. Yes. So, let's look over there for just a second. And I've got it, I've got it cross-referenced. Isaiah 28, 21. So, we'll hop over here. And I, wanted, I just want to set this up. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Where did I put it? No, I'll just go to twenty-eight, twenty-one. He's talking about Zion, and he says, "For the Lord will rise up as in Mount uh, Perizim; he shall be as wroth as in the valley of Gibeon. That he will do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act." Again, we're back to the Old Testament again. Yes, they are. So, there have been <laughs> Okay, so he's going to use this term, strange act, in connection with building a temple. Okay, you can put these things together. 
So, so of course, we all know what happened on Mount Pearson, right? All right. Well, then you know obviously what happened in uh, Gibeon. No. Okay. I do. <laughs> Did I go forward this last week? No. I do some research on it as well because they're not understandable to us. You have to go back and research them. Okay. Uh, Mount Perizon was actually a great military battle that, under the inspiration of the Lord, that David won. Okay, and then, uh, and in fact, he would he would call out. Uh, well, hold on. Uh, let me just. And then, Mount Gibeon uh, from uh, Exodus. Then spoke Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand you still in Gibeon, and you moon in the valley of Ajalon. Okay? In other words, when the sun stood still. Okay? So he's talking about two incredible acts by the Lord beyond the power of anybody else. That only the Lord could bring these things to pass. Does that make sense? And he's just using historical references. Okay, so now, why would the Lord reach back and grab these two things? And he's talking about, I needed you to build the temple so that I could bring my strange act. In the great uh, distance, in the grand uh, council, Lucifer said he was going to do with his own. Yeah. Lucifer was cast out of the earth. And he's still trying to do his own way. And the Savior said, not so. Yeah. I'm going to show you how I'm going to do it. <clears throat> and, and it's going to be my way in my time. And so his strange act, is this going to, does this look kind of strange to the rest of the world? It's strange, but it is an act that only God could bring to pass. And it was outside the understanding of these people. And they had to be taught and educated. And so that's why it was going to become this strange act. Those who have not chosen have sinned a very grievous sin. They're walking in darkness at noonday. You don't understand how important the temple is. You don't understand what I have in store for you. And then I'm going to call what I have in store for you, I'm going to call that what? An endowment of power. I'm going to empower you with things that you could get nowhere else. But it must be done in my place and in my way. Good question. She says, How educated was Joseph Smith? That's kind of a double layered kind of thing. One is, How educated was he on the whole topic of temples in the first place? And pretty slim, okay? He was being taught along the way. So I think at times, so for these kind of things to come through Joseph's mind and be recorded is another testament of Joseph Smith. So he necessarily wouldn't have known that Isaiah existed. No. Now he had been. Now he might have because remember he was doing the Joseph Smith translation right about this time, so he was going through it step by step. 
If we, before I go there, so I want you to have in mind then that that they're beginning to get this idea that we need that we need to be able to get this temple built. Now let's come back for just a second. Uh, let me, in fact, let me do this. When they were trying to figure out what it is that we're going to look like, in this, in, in section 95, the Lord will say to them, I will, I will give to three people the design of the temple. And, and about three days after this, Joseph went out. Uh, he took uh, Frederick G. Williams with him and Sidney Rigdon. They went out. They laid on the lawn, their lawn and grass. And Joseph laid out with his arms out. They lay on either side of him. And they could see the design of the temple in the distance. It's almost like, think of a 3D image. They could see it inside and out. And they said that it slowly came towards them. It passed over them. So that they could look around inside and they could see the detail of what the Kirtland Temple looked like. And all that. Wow. And so that they really had in their mind that there was a very specific, uh, detailed pattern that the Lord had intended that it would look exactly like this. And from time to time the workers would call like Frederick G. Williams over who managed a lot of the, the building and they would say, how does this look? And he'd say, yeah, it looks just right, add this, add that. Uh, and, and then he would tell Brigham Young, for instance, Brigham did a lot of the woodwork on the pulpits, particularly inside the temple. Um, and and so they had a they had, they built this entire uh, process then according to the Lord's plans. Now, just as a uh, let's come back to the question: Why why this particular design? Okay, this is actually three three buildings for the price of one, is it not? What's the bottom part of the temple? It's the meeting house. It's the tabernacle. It's the conference center. Okay, so this is the bottom. The bottom floor was where it was, where they were going to be able to meet. Uh, it still has the raised pulpits on each side, and we'll talk about those pulpits a little more at another time. But uh, there are Melchizedek priesthood pulpits on one side, and Roman priesthood pulpits on the other. Apparently, they were, it was the design that Adam used in uh, some things that he did. Okay, so what's the second floor? What's the purpose of the second floor? This is, uh, it's kind of the school of prophets. It's more the temple. The temple proper is really the second floor. Okay? And then there was a third floor, and that contained the, the offices. And that was really where the school of the prophets took place. That's where they met a lot. So what you're really getting is conference center, temple, <coughs> BYU. 
all in one building. Okay? Kind of fascinating. All right. Now, here's the complication that comes with this. So they start this, they actually do the ground, do the groundbreaking. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information on the groundbreaking that took place uh, in July of 1833. All we know, as I mentioned before, the same week that they are, they break ground in the Curtin Temple, it all starts to, the persecution begins to break loose in Missouri. Same way. That's why Brigham Young would always say, every time we build a temple, the bells of hell start to ring. And they started to ring. So suddenly a lot of the attention in the next six months while they're trying to build the temple is also going to be drawn away to the fact that Missouri is falling apart. And the saints are being driven out. And within six months, uh, within five months of the groundbreaking in the Kirtland Temple, we are bedraggled, soaked, dripping on the other side of the Missouri River uh, and having escaped Jackson County and, in, and the church in Missouri is in tatters. So, so let's now combine that with what do we do? So I'm trying, trying to get the temple built and my mind keeps getting pulled over to the fact that we have these wonderful saints that are going through all of this horribleness. And, and so, so this gets us section 98. And 98 has a lot to it. We'll try and get through what we can. The thing that's fascinating about this is that this is this is received August 6th. There's no way that Joseph knows just that how fast things are starting to deteriorate in Missouri. He will know about six months later, and that will lead into Zion's camp. Okay? But this is what this is going to come actually in August. Verily I say unto you, my friends, fear not and let your hearts be comforted, yea, rejoice evermore, and in everything giving thanks. Waiting patiently on the Lord, and, and let's just stop for a second, for those of you, keep this in mind, for those of you who have prayers unanswered, and things that you have struggled with, for whom the, the heavens seem as brass, and you can't quite break through. <coughs> Waiting patiently on the Lord for the for your prayers have entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Whose prayers are he talking? Do you think he's talking about? What's going on in Missouri? The persecuted saints. The persecuted saints. Why? We've consecrated ourselves. We're here. Why is all of this starting to be stirred up? Why? And he says, your prayers have ascended into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. 
and are recorded with this seal and testament. Oh. The Lord hath sworn and decreed that they shall be granted. Therefore he giveth this promise unto you. With an immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled. And all things wherewith you have been afflicted shall work together for your good. And to my name's glory saith the Lord. We get it, sort of, don't we? When we're in the middle of, and we're so good in church, you know, when we catch somebody who's just lost their job, and, and or they're struggling, or they've just lost a parent, or, and, and we're saying, you know, all things will work together for your good. They really will, and you just want to punch them sometimes, don't you? Because sometimes that is not as comforting. Why would that not be comforting? That the Lord has heard you and that He has attached a seal and an immutable promise and He heard your prayers. Why is that not comforting? Because right now I'm in pain and right now I'm struggling.
Lord is mindful. He doesn't always give us what we want when we want. We lose a job. You know, we may feel devastated, but like you said, it's going to push us to do something better. And it hit me one day when I was thinking about Tevia and when he sings, If I Were a Rich Man. And here he lived in, he was dirt poor in Anatevka. And how did it end? He was leaving Anatevka where he was dirt poor. And where was he going? Yeah, to America. To America. He may have gotten his wish. Yeah. But it'd be nice if Christ would show up, if the Messiah would come now, I guess he's not, so we have to leave Anatevka. Okay, we're, we're going to Pittsburgh, America! Okay. Okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, President Jones, let me pick on you for a second, if I could. Because one of this is that I hear your struggles, and part of it he says, if I love you, I will also chastise you. You, uh, when you were state president, you got to sit through a number of chastisements. And, and I know that always, you know, on the high council, there is a sense of, okay, we're having a special meeting uh, that, that uh, borrowing from uh, President Kennedy, we, I just tell my wife I have a cheese sandwich. I, I'm going to have a cheese sandwich on the back of the And you don't know if this is going to be one of those bittersweet, we're having it on the front end, or it's sweeter because it's on the back end and, and things are being restored to them. But what is that like in terms of the chastisement as you walk as you watch people go through that process? The process usually happens prior to that meeting. ones on the, on the back end, where you watch the whole process go through, and it's been interesting to watch people on the front end, and they are humbled and chastised and hurting, and then you just watch almost this entire different person come back a year or two later, and they're coming back, and you just see the changes that have occurred. But even on the front end, there's a real sense of There's kind of a relief that comes off of their shoulders. Yeah, yeah. And and wouldn't you, and you wouldn't necessarily think about that in, in terms of I've heard your prayers and I'm going to answer your prayers and I will chastise you. I'm going to run you through painful things so you can be purified and you can become who you're going to be. Kind of amazing. Okay. So. Now, so this next part, section 98, has been kind of a popular one within the church in the last couple of years. And we need to make sure that we keep this apolitical, okay? okay. If I raise your hand, this will be apolitical, all right? Okay. Any opposed by the same side? All right. Now. Verse 4, Verily I say unto you concerning the laws of my land, what do we do? How do we, how do we restore these, these uh, families to their, to their properties when, when evil men are turning against them? The laws of my, it's, it's my will that my people should observe to do all things whatsoever I command them, and the law of the land which is what? 
constitutional, supporting the, princ the principle of freedom in maintaining rights and privileges belongs to all mankind and is justifiable before me. If you haven't had a chance to, to read it, I would certainly, uh, I would get Cleonskousen's uh, 5,000 year leap. How many have had a chance to read that, by the way? Okay. What uh, Brother Skousen argues pretty convincingly for is the fact that when the founders of the, of the nation were coming together, that they were working off of what they called natural laws. Have you ever read it? Remember what natural laws are? What's a natural law? And it's not gravity. Okay. Number one, they've always existed. A natural law was just by, by virtue of your being a human being, God has endowed you with certain unalienable rights, which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Right to property, all those kind of things. That those are granted to you by God. And that it's the government's responsibility to guard them and protect them. That was the basis. So whatever government they were going to set up was going to be based on the idea that mankind is given certain rights by God and they're going to set up a government that will protect natural laws. Does that make sense? And one of those is freedom. The ability to go and do. So, so we talk about the fact that, well, we're trying to... Uh, uh, well, let, let, yeah, let, let's, let's keep going. Six, therefore I, the Lord, justify you and the brethren of my church in befriending that law which is the constitutional law of the land and as pertaining to the law of man whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. I, the Lord God, make you free. That's a natural law. I made you free. And we could actually add to that, and you fought for that freedom before this life. It's why you're here. So he's going to say, I, the Lord, make you free, therefore you are free indeed. And the law also maketh you free. So in other words, that even in, I just find it fascinating, sitting in Liberty Jail, Joseph Smith, in his writing, talks about the Constitution being a glorious and divine document. And he's sitting in Liberty Jail, placed there unjustly by a local corrupt government. But the Constitution says a divine document. Now, let me... Let me let's get to that. Because I want to... I didn't say it was in the morning. Didn't they get put <laughs> Okay. John Adams. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Why? Yeah. Of those who are righteous. 
will take care of all the little things that you can't write enough laws to enforce. Such as? Just being decent, uh, kind, uh, loving. Yeah. Okay. Other countries have tried to take the Constitution word for word and make it, make it work for them. Why? Why? Why has it not worked in other countries? Have the moral underpinnings, underpinnings. and it becomes a, a, a weight and a corruption. Okay. Yeah. We had a country that was white people coming in. So a lot of other countries have past tradition and past ideas of what they think is right, and they try to build on that and keep that. The Constitution has been adapted successfully in a lot of the world. It was set forth as a standard. Well, let's let's work in a lot of places. One of the things that we've tried to do, of course, is to take this idea that all men should be free. And then we've dropped it into places like Russia and Iraq, some of those places. How's that? And Afghanistan, how's that going? It's been rough. Why? What was wrong with the culture? They're not used to freedom. Exactly right. That part of a moral and just religious people has a sense of freedom and responsibility. And if you've lived, and if your culture is lived under some kind of dictatorship, then to suddenly drop freedom is like is a little bit like saying to a group of five-year-olds, "You can eat whatever you want." <laughs> Great, now I have freedom. But they don't have the restraint and the discipline to, to pull that off, right? Right. That's right. And that's what comes in a moral and religious society. And they don't know the true nature of God. They have bits and pieces, but they don't know the true nature of God. Okay. So there so there's the problem. Yeah. And so that statement kind of on a different subject, it sounds a little bit like, you know, you can read the welfare program of the church, how well it works and how it maybe it wouldn't work in so many other situations. Because it depends on a group of people who are willing to put into the system way more than they ever hope to get out of it. Sure. You know? I found it fascinating that I've heard at least a couple of people say lately that uh, in a lot of ways the, the uh, what they were trying to live at this time, the, the whole uh, United Order, Law of Consecration, really isn't that far from socialism, is it? Well, that was kind of my reaction. What's the difference? Choice. Choice. And you still own individual property. And And stewardship. A responsibility. Okay? And the motivation for why you're doing it. Because you're being compelled to or because you love others. Yes. And, And it's that love. Again, we're coming back to what he's talking about. That's why I think this is such an inspired comment. Okay? This whole idea that says, I'm going to give you a constitution, but it has to have a moral foundation underneath it. That's why, could this, could this church have been reared on, under any other government? No. Or time. Or time. Because I'm not sure it would work today. You might not. God doesn't mean nothing to them. Yeah. There was a particular moment in time with the government in place. And look how, look how we hung on by our toenails in Missouri and then in Nauvoo and then, and then we get to Utah and we're fine, right? Yeah. Oh, there is that Utah war thing they're going to set an army out. 
and, and threatened to take away all our property. Yeah. Okay. So, I, the Lord, made you free, therefore you are free indeed. Nevertheless, when the, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Talking about kings and dictators, or talking about could happen under democracy? Oh. Therefore, honest men and wise men should be what? Sought for diligently, and good men and wise men you should observe to uphold, otherwise whatsoever is less than these cometh of evil. It was always a struggle with the church trying to, trying to get the support of the local leaders who are always balancing constituencies with trying to uphold the rights of the church. And that becomes particularly true in other major problem in Nauvoo. Because of, of a lot of the things... Uh, we're going to talk about... Let's go back for a second. You, you asked about uh, Masons and, and the Temple. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, the, the first answer to why it is that Joseph <coughs> and some of the brethren got involved in Masonry uh, without talking about the effect that it had in uh, and temple ordinances. The first part of that, that was very, very political. Because, for instance, to, a, to, to be a Mason, you have to, first of all, be able to have people vouch for you that you are a good man. With, with, with integrity. you got to be a good man. And so there was, and within that process then, part of what Joseph and Hiram and others were trying to do was to become part of a society of support, uh, particularly in Warsaw uh, and uh, in Carthage, were two particular areas where there was a hotbed and the Masons were very strong, and if we can unite ourselves as part of this process, we're going to be in a better place. Okay? Now, so if they're going to look for honest and wise men, where are they going to look any farther than the Masons? So it's a matter of trying to join with them. Okay? Yes. Oh no, it has to be Mason. It has to be other Masons that can uh, verify who you are. So that was really a protection kind of thing. And be recommended by them. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, if, if somewhere along the way you prove that you're not an honest and good man, then you could be tossed out. One black ball. Something like that. Okay, now. I mean, the whole group had gotten a vote on They were, yeah. There was one black ball in there. Anyway. And, and they're out. Mm -hmm. Now, so, so, without trying to get into the whole section of the rest of 98, is, this has sometimes kind of been called uh, the rules of war. Uh, talking about when, when should we go to war as saints? When do we go to battle against others? Uh, have there been times when Joseph preached peace? We're going to talk about that. Was there times when Joseph preached war? Zion's camp, 
Although they got ready to fight and they never fought, there was a time at Far West. And he used this as that when we have tried three times to try and put off our enemies and you're going to attack us anyway, that is a moment. At Far West, he was ready to fight. There is another moment in Nauvoo, uh, in front of the Nauvoo Legion, and some have said uh, this was Joseph the man, not Joseph the prophet. Hard really to know. Uh, but there were, they were making threat, threats against the prophet's life. The jo Joseph stood in front of the uh, Nauvoo Legion. He pulled his sword out and he said, I will defend these people to the death. And I will not sheep this sword. I will fight in your honor. And made a big show of that. By the way, can you get a chance to visit the Nauvoo Temple? Get a chance to talk, grab one of the grab the recorder of the temple. Ask for the recorder. That that sword is in his office, just off of the lobby in the Nauvoo Temple. You can see. It. Okay. But there were times he was willing to fight. Now. But but I want it in in the time that we have remaining. I want it, I want to. I want to finish by having you take a look at how the Lord is saying that we are to respond to enemies. And sometimes the enemies are very uh, very noticeable. Other churches attacking us or people attacking us. Sometimes they're going to be more subtle. And you're going to get a three-step process here about how to handle those that would attack you because of your faith. Fourteen. Therefore, be not afraid of your enemies, for I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death, that you may be found worthy. For if you do not abide in my covenant, you are not worthy of me. Therefore, renounce war and proclaim peace. Now, I, I, there's a three-part process that I look at. First of all, step number one in verse 15 and, and 14. I will prove you in all things, wherefore you will what? Abide in my covenant. Number one is abide. What does it mean to abide in the covenant? Remain. Stand in holy places. Don't give up. Hold tightly. Abide in the covenant is number one. Number two. Therefore, 16, do what? Renounce war. Renounce contention. Abide, renounce war. And number three is proclaim peace. That's our responsibility. When we are being attacked, abide, renounce, proclaim. When we were being attacked at Far West, one of the reasons why we came, almost came to blows at Far West, Joseph had said to the saints, abide, renounce, proclaim. There was a group under the, the control of Samson Avard that started to meet together. These were the Danites. 
And they started to have secret meetings within the church. And they said, we're tired of being attacked. And these, and these uh, old settlers coming in and burning our crops, we're going to burn them back. And so the, the Danites would actually go out and burn the crops of the old settlers. And they started to do an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth thing. Sidney Reagan got tied up in this a little bit. And it was because of the action of the Danites uh, that they called themselves. It's like the, the it, it was, white Danites, it's the stone cut without hands rolling down the hill. It's, it's Dan, Daniel. It's going to roll down and crush everybody. Okay? It's because of the Danites that they really, that all of the hostilities rose up in northern Missouri to a peak that led to the expulsion from far west. But even now, for, and for years and years after, all of the old cowboy novels that people would read around the turn of the century always talked about Brigham Young and the Danites. The Danites were going out and shooting people and the and it's like the avenging angels of Joseph Smith and then the avenging angels of Brigham Young and those Danites were everywhere. And Porter Rockwell and the Danites and all that. It's just, and all along Joseph was saying to them, don't, don't. Abide, renounce, proclaim. And, and all the suffering came as a result of that. By the way, do you know who was the, one of the final pieces that caused the the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith, Samson Abrams, would make his way from Missouri across the river, and he was part of the getting the Carthage Grays ready in Warsaw to attack Joseph at Carthage. He was one of the final pieces. Was he a member of the church? Yeah, he was. But that, that's why they're trying to do it within the church, and they were holding secret meetings, and it was and, and the ones that got caught up in the secret meetings. Uh, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the far west part, but they will then cast out uh, Oliver Cowdery, W.W. Phelps, uh, David Whitmer, uh, the, run out by the Danites, who will then sign the proclamation <coughs> that gave Governor Boggs the green line to do the extermination. Because the word extermination order was first used by the Danites.
and, and, and hatred tankers, and, and, and grudges tanker, and they just eat at us. And that's why I think there's a beauty here to being able to say that the more we are filled with the love of the Savior, that even those who would be attacking us, we're going to abide in the covenant, we're going to understand the promises that we've made, the covenants we've made with God, and then we will renounce war and proclaim. Yeah. Rather than even fight and maybe shed the blood of somebody that might not be ready to go to heaven, I will lay down and hopefully my death will change their heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, one last piece here then. Uh, so, we're renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently and listen to this phrase. To turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children. Where have we heard that? Oh, Malachi. This is everywhere. That's part of what happens. Think about it in this context. Think about it in this context that, that somehow, if, if we're working with our kids and we teach them to abide in the covenant, renounce war and contention, proclaim peace, as a result of that, hearts are going to be turned to, to their fathers. Yeah. Now, in this though, we're about to be given one more, this church has one more responsibility. And it's pretty audacious, especially to a group of saints in 1833 <coughs> who are on the process of trying to build a temple and they are just scattered all over the place. And then listen to this uh, charge that was given by the Lord. And again, verse 17. The hearts of the Jews unto the prophets, and the prophets unto the Jews, lest I come and smite the whole earth with a curse, and all flesh will be consumed before me. What is the responsibility of this church? Redeem our dead. Not just redeem our dead, but specifically in 17. To redeem the Jews. Well, we're not in very great standing sometimes in the Jew within the Jewish faith, are we? So we keep doing that. We keep, you know, doing baptisms for the dead and for the Holocaust victims, and that stirs things up. But that's one of the the assignments given to this bedraggled group of saints to say it's your job to help the Jews get back to Israel, to gather them in, and to have them recognize the prophets Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who preached about Jesus Christ. Let me finish with this. Hopefully we can read this. Actually, maybe not. What was the man's name that was the leader of that group? Samson Avard. Uh huh. President Benson. In Jacob's blessing to Judah, he declared, Judah is an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? We come as messengers bearing the legitimate authority to arouse Judah to her promises. We do not ask Judah to forsake her heritage, we are not asking her to leave her father, mother, or family. 
We bring a message that Judah does not possess. The message constitutes the living water from the fountain of living waters. Our prophet Joseph Smith was giving a commandment by the Lord to turn the hearts of the Jews to the prophets and the prophets to the Jews. We are presently sending messengers to every land and people whose ideology permits entrance. We have been gathering Joseph's descendants for 146 years. We hope you who are of Judah will not think it an intrusion for us to bring our message to you. You are welcome uh, to attend our meetings. We honor your uh, commitments uh, to your uh, heritage and to you individually. Yeah. Uh, it gets worse, doesn't it? We approach you at... Okay, keep going. That's all I got. Oh, okay. Well, that's all I got. <laughs> that's why there'd be no more. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that's our responsibility. And at the moment, it just seems like that is, it's a little bit like trying to build a temple when we don't understand what a temple is. That somehow, we will have a major role in helping them understand their heritage and who they are. Not by taking away their heritage, but adding to it. Not by trying to destroy what they believe, but giving them the full knowledge of what they believe for thousands of years. That their, that their promises are sure, and that we are much more like them than they have any idea. Uh, did I not put the... Uh, he gave this in a conference address. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get that. I'll get the reference on that. So, in closing, let me just suggest that. That I think, uh, that to me there are a couple of lessons that, that really jumped out here. Number one is the process that we go by in, the person, in our purification, trying to become clean. But part of it, too, is our ability to handle adversity. And sometimes that adversity is going to come in the form of enemies that would do us ill. Sometimes it's people attacking the church, but it could be family members attacking you. It could be unkind words being said from a variety of places. I think we're under attack constantly. And the Lord is saying to us constantly, Abide in the covenant. Renounce war, proclaim peace. For to do that to all people, and we will do that to the Jews. I think that we have far a far greater mission than we have any idea. Sometimes we just see our, our local sacrament meetings or our primary class, and we have a hard time seeing a bigger picture. But it's there. And if we'll allow ourselves to see it, the Lord will expand our far beyond anything you know. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Yeah. It talks called The Message to Judah from Joseph. And it's in the Ensign, December Ensign 1976. Awesome.
I love Google. Google of Thumb is awesome. Okay, so it's, uh, that was uh, December 1976. And so, okay, thank you. Have you been out there? 